Viewed as a microcosm of manifest destiny beyond the confines of the geographical limits of the continental United States, the annexation of the Hawaiian Islands by the U.S. in the late 19th century marked the beginning of what we now consider the global American empire. To the Hawaiian peoples, it was clearly just as, if not more so, a historic moment, albeit done for reasons of pragmatic acceptance of their minor power relationship in an ocean surrounded by much larger political and economic forces. The Hawaiian Islands, given their incredible strategic military location in the middle of the Pacific, would inevitably come under the sway of one of the surrounding powers. It was almost always less a question of if, but rather a question of when and how. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hockey. It's been nine years. Aloha. Welcome to the program. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm joined by Adam and Hans. And today is somewhat of a long time coming, but also we have not really arrived because in the past we had done some fruit related content in which we discussed the banana and the bananas effects on history. And I was interested in discussing another fruit. I wanted to talk about the pineapple and in my investigation into the pineapple, I realized, for better or for worse, that the pineapple is a largely unimportant fruit. So rather than being able to deliver a sequel to the banana in the form of the pineapple, uh, we will today instead discuss an episode in American imperialism and really the beginning of American imperialism and what we can make of that and where it brings us today and what we can learn from it to the best of our ability here. So we will be discussing Hawaii, which is an island and it is in the Pacific and it is right here. I don't know if you guys catch that reference, but that's a, that was George W's vice president. Oh, right. Uh, Dan Quayle. Yeah, Dan Quayle. Yeah. Which is actually in many ways a good a good introduction into the subject because Dan Quayle was, of course, an idiot. And a lot of the people <laughs> who were responsible for American foreign policy at this time were also idiots. Uh, idiots in like a, in a big sense. Like these are these are mostly very shallow people 
what we're dealing with, like, so I had Adam, I had you look at uh, Stephen Kinzer's book, Overthrow. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, yeah. We've discussed Stephen, Stephen Kinzer in the past. He's a popular writer of, uh, he, he has sort of a anti-interventionist take on and his general revisionism of 20th century American foreign policy. It's not going to be anything especially surprising or groundbreaking to people who, I don't know, have like read like antiwar.com or something for years. In fact, it's in many ways an even more superficial take than some of the things you could find on, on that website. Uh, but he gives in his book Overthrow uh, a fairly accessible, popular narrative as to the so-called overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. But in many respects, that's a misnomer, and maybe that's something we can get into here. Yeah. Um, well, so his, his got, book his book broadly was about the United States's pattern of overthrowing foreign governments starting with Hawaii. And that, that was the opening chapter, but he uses that as sort of like the leading example of where this got, uh, got developed, got prototyped perhaps. Uh, it, it has some unique characteristics I would argue though. And obviously being the first, it's not going to be, uh, like the others because they had to kind of work out the kinks maybe, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a reasonably good overview of overthrow. So, um, the thing about Hawaii and American, like someone, what someone like Kinzer is trying to do there is establish a narrative that, uh, about the nature of American imperialism and how, what happened in Hawaii, you can draw somehow you draw a line from that to, I don't know, to Tehran and then to uh, Iraq. Uh, I don't know, Ukraine and the Maidan. I mean, take your pick. They want to draw a pattern here that it's just that America became this imperialist power and it was just off to the races. And I have a lot of problems with this for a number of reasons. Uh, imperialism itself being, of course, a not very well-defined term. Uh, I guess you could say you know it when you see it, but it's not always exactly that clear. And in the case of Hawaii, it really wasn't some kind of grand conspiracy. So the narrative that he presents, and this was, like I, like I said in the introduction, I was curious as to what role the... Uh, the fruit magnets, and it turns out, like, no, that wasn't really the the oligarchy. The white oligarchy on Hawaii was not selling fruit. It was sugarcane that was the uh, proverbial spice melange of the story. But even then, it really wasn't that significant to what happened. Well, well sh- sugar was actually role. profitable only for a brief period of time, and it was sort of yes. a, a product of a kind of a unique set of trade barriers that were one at one point lowered and then raised later. 
and then basically became a free market. And there was a time when Hawaiian sugarcane was quite competitive compared to apparently Louisiana grown sugarcane. And then the Louisianans got angry that the Hawaiians were out competing them. So they basically lobbied to get some kind of restriction put back on Hawaii. And then at that point, Hawaii fell apart. And then it got even worse when the entire um, world could sell sugar to the United States. So I don't really know what, what, what caused all of those decisions to be made, but the, the fact is the, the period of uh, King Sugar in Hawaii really only lasted for, for it seemed to be about 10 years. Uh, and then it, it, it was still a presence, I think, until you know maybe the mid-20th century. But you go to Hawaii now and it's pretty much gone. It's it's just probably just too far away logistically and not not economical. And it probably makes more sense to sell sell the land for for real estate because you know people want to live there now. Well, yeah, if you yeah, so if anyone has spent any time in Hawaii, you can actually uh, drive around the islands. You can see physically see the decaying, rusted um, remnants of uh, sugarcane processing facilities all over the place. And there, you know, it's sort of like the Midwest where you see either uh, you know, decaying agricultural depots or you know big silos next to rail stations or decaying factories. Uh, in Hawaii, you know, they never really built any major agricultural infrastructure. They never built any major industrial infrastructure. Closest thing that was ever built in Hawaii's heyday was basically uh, sugarcane plantations and sugarcane uh, processing facilities and a lot of them weren't even that large and they sort of died out as adam is saying well before uh, sort of the third wave of industrialization in america so they look you know intensely old and beat up at the same time they just like you know relics from some dead civilization it's it's very weird it's very jarring if you've ever been to hawaii and you see them all over the place so I should. I might as well mention it now because it's possible I might miss it later. Uh, there was one aspect of the sugar oligarchs that did play a major role in the political development, uh, namely the annexation of Hawaii. And it had a lot to do with the fact that in 1890, under the McKinley administration, you had a lot of tariffs being put into place. And so that basically led to a total de- devastation of the operation that these people were running in Hawaii because they were not, it wasn't America. So now they're paying these tariffs on the importation of that sugar. In the, in yeah, the sugar and they had an eight year reprieve. And that's what uh, lapsed basically after Louisiana lobbied against it. Uh, and then at that point, yeah, basically the tariffs went back to where they were to start with. So with that being said, it I think it's worth examining because my essential thesis for American imperialism generally is just that America served its purpose in the 20th century as a and beyond at this point it as a Bolshevik power and so I can agree largely with the critiques that these uh, sort of uh, bleeding heart types will make about America's meddling around the world and how this is um, this has been a disaster and of course it has been a disaster but not for the same reasons that these people would say it's been a disaster for much larger and more important reasons than they would say because the 
fundamental question, like I would like to essentially revisit the sort of debates that would have been had around this time, considering America's foreign policy and where it's headed. That, With that in mind, the thing to understand about Hawaii that you're not going to get from most people is the fact that Hawaii was long conquered. It wasn't like it was some foreign state that existed. Hawaii was conquered at least 50 years, uh, arguably 70 years prior to the annexation. And it was conquered spiritually and economically. It was conquered by the typical type of, it was conquered essentially by New England. It was conquered by people who wanted to embrace the white man's burden and without any regard to their nation or the destiny of the white race on the American continent, uh, decided to bring their fucking women and children to an island in the Pacific to bring Jesus to this Jesus and capitalism to these Polynesian savages. And that's really where the story begins. It begins a bit prior as to the white man's first encounter with the inhabitants of Hawaii, which was Captain Cook's ill-fated voyage that, of course, led to him being rendered down to bones in a some kind of, um, like, oven. I guess how they would, would do a luau, yeah. Yeah, that's you, the reason he would do that is because you wanted to get, because Captain Cook, bringing the technology of the white man, he was uh, essentially seen as a god when he first arrived in the 18, late 18th century to the Hawaiian Islands, which would then be called in the English-speaking world the Sandwich Islands, given that Cook's patron was the Earl or Duke of Sandwich or what have you, and that that, that was their name going forward. But uh, yeah, you basically, he was considered a god, and as such, um, if you were to kill a god uh, and you were to obtain the god's bones, that would have very powerful mana and you could use that to catch very big fish or to be victorious over your enemies in warfare. Uh, it's, I guess, understandable. It was uh, ultimately a misunderstanding that led to this happening, but that's really neither here nor there. The point is, the cat was out of the bag, so to speak. And this led to the disintegration of the tribal society as it existed prior to contact with the outside world. And it, it wasn't as, for example, uh, we we're talking about Kinzer's book. He makes this glib comment that it was like the sugar industry that led to like social problems and the, the, the falling apart of the old order. And that's absolutely incorrect. Um, what happened actually was that with the introduction of this, and with the fact that the word had spread out. So at that point, now you had other people knew about this and others were showing up. Uh, Frenchmen were showing up. Russians were showing up. Uh, the Japanese perhaps had shown up a long time ago, uh, but only by accident, presumably. There's some evidence that there were like shipwreck Japanese back in like the 13th century. Well, I remember seeing some, uh, there was some, historical research that indicated Japanese whalers 
had visited the Hawaiian Islands on multiple occasions, and this was actually extrapolated from Japanese records. More than likely, there was a certain set of islands that the Japanese continued to visit time do you, after time. Do you know what century that was? Not particularly, but definitely predates the Cook. sort of uh, Anglo uh, yeah. involvement with Hawaii by probably hundreds of years. But yeah, there's certainly medieval Japan at the earliest uh, was more than likely conducting like very, very simplistic trade and likely just using the Hawaiian Islands as a uh, stopgap while they would do ship repair or something like that, uh, but had definitely visited the islands on, on more than one occasion. Um, and the Japanese certainly did have a some, you know, somewhat of a relationship with Polynesians in general and had definitely involved themselves in Polynesian spheres for some amount of time um, in the last thousand years, on and off. They had, you know, they had infrequent dealings with them. Uh, oftentimes it was pretty cordial. It was mostly just trade-related. Uh, the Japanese were certainly aware of the Polynesians and vice versa. But I, I want to say that probably the Portuguese had a actually tremendous relationship with Hawaii as well. And there was a non-trivial amount of Portuguese that settled on the Hawaiian Islands, um, I believe in the 18th century, maybe even the 17th century, uh, an earlier point, and had spent time there um, well before, again, like, you know, Anglo involvement with the islands. Well, the Portuguese, they, uh, and ironically the Japanese as well, ended up being brought into the islands as a result of uh, American capitalists. Yes. yes, there was a later big Portuguese um, sort of emigration into the islands, you're correct. Portu I, think, I believe Portuguese traders had actually encountered the island chain before, though. They had been. The, thing, the thing is, there wasn't a lot to trade with the primitive Hawaiians. Um, That's true. Uh, the, the main thing, it was, as you said, it was a useful, if you were out in the deep Pacific, it would be useful to some extent. Uh, but the main thing that people were interested in, sailors in particular, was, of course, uh, the pussy. <laughs> and as such, uh, Hawaii has, ever since its contact with the outside world, had rampant problems with STDs. Uh, and all varieties from all over the world. It's basically served as sort of a whorehouse of the Pacific. And it had... Uh, Owing in large part, of course, to the cultural mores of the Hawaiians themselves. But is that really true, though? Or is this, I mean. Yeah, it's really true. Like, mm. it, yeah. yeah what what part are you referring to, Hans? Well, the idea that, that it was the, the sexual mores of. Well, it takes two to tango. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, the sailors are involved, too. But. And well, you can see it today in the sense like it, they didn't have any particular reservations. Like they have very little race instinct. Uh, it's in, in large part due to the fact that it is a somewhat matriarchal society. Mm. Uh, somewhat. Uh, it was, of course, a, had a warrior culture, but uh, it was not women, for example, were allowed, women were able to have property. Uh, in fact, were the ones who held property, which later led to the uh, racial chaos that came from 
uh, English, the English world as to people being able to essentially marry in merchants, Scottish, English, American, whatever, being able to marry in to land holdings mm. by by simply marrying these women. And of course, famously, the the last dynastic ruler of Hawaii was a queen. And they were often queens. I mean, it wasn't it was not a patriarchal society. I should add that, for example, uh, men and women were never to eat together. But like incest, uh, polyamory, these things were all perfectly normal practices, as well as infanticide and human sacrifice, particularly uh, gynocide or the killing of of women, of girls Mm. uh, was very common. That's interesting for the uh, matriarchal society. They would want that. I recently rewatched. It's funny that you say that because I recently rewatched Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Uh, I'm not going to go into that in detail, but uh, it's about the, the to what devil. You, to or? what you just said, <laughs> it no, actually nah. it actually makes yeah. a lot of sense in a matriarchal society. Um, part of a, a part historically matriarchal societies structured themselves in a way in which Nick is kind of describing here. The women became the landholding elite, and as such, they became um, just the elite in general. You know, there's different kinds of elites, but landholding elite instantly becomes the most powerful, just sort of the baseline uh, elite of any society. So if you restrict the number of available women, this makes it far less likely that men are going to, for example, overthrow you, uh, you know, do some kind of harm to you, try and remove you, um, go for the younger woman, go for a different woman. Oh, okay, you, yeah, yeah. you're just reducing you the competition. Control, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's really about control. And, it, you know, it, societies that worship women um, are also likely to sacrifice them. This is just sort of like really basic sociology but that which you worship and that which you uh sympathize with is act i you know paradoxically is what you sacrifice more often than not so there's a great deal of culture surrounding um bulls in rome and romans sacrificed bulls just incessantly um and you would think you know that the greeks too and you would think that there was some sort of uh, belief, in, you know, that uh, you know, bulls are evil or they, they're, they're disrespected or something like that. But actually, you know, they represented a massive, massive um, sort of, uh, or they emblemized certain elements of Roman and Greek mythology to such a huge extent um, that this is actually seen as the ultimate form of respect and, uh, and paradoxically worship is to sacrifice them. So it does make sense in that sense as well. Uh, for a Hawaiian society to be a sort of matriarchal one. What's bizarre Adam, is that, well, it's actually, it's also not necessarily bizarre that Hawaii wound up matriarchal society. Um, you know, isolated, infrequent amounts of outsiders attacking mostly, you know, Hawaiian, the Hawaiian islands themselves were sort of a, a mini version of medieval Japan and that it was extremely feudalistic. Um, but there was no real outside competitors. There was no major existential threat of destruction, permanent destruction, you know, like rape and pillaging. And it's just sort of the end of everything that, you know, most societies on earth have that existential fear of their neighbors, 
foreign powers, so they manifest as uh, you know, societies run by men. But a society run, you know, an isolated society, not always, but can wind up very weird and inward focused. And anything that's inward focused um, will inevitably kind of lead to, you know, being female dominated. And to answer your question even more directly, Adam, or the implication of your question, uh, you seem to be confused at the idea that some kind of that when you have a domination by women or you have women, I won't say liberated, but in in <laughs> positions of power, right? that it would, be, uh, it would be strange that they would commit acts of infanticide. Well, I guess I'll use the word liberation well, now. No, in particular the sexual of, liberation of, of in female, the West. Female babies. Yes. So following the sexual liberation of women in the West, uh, has infanticide increased or decreased? Oh, it's increased, but what what I was referring to was the targeting of girl babies in particular uh, by a matriarchal society. That ha- that that phenomenon has been seen throughout the the East and India and China, but I do not regard them as matriarchal. I, I regard them as somewhat patriarchal in the sense that if you well, if you look, at least look at the the leaderships of both of those countries, especially in China, most of them are men. And traditionally, the the inheritance was transferred through through male heirs. Now, in Hawaii, it sounds like it's, it's the opposite, but they seem to continue this practice of eliminating girl babies. Uh, that's I what surprised that me. There's, but there's a different manifestation behind or, you know, what actually brings that about. So in the case of, of China... Uh, I think you're talking about modern, semi-modern China, although they've now reversed uh, this policy. But there was a time, you're right, where the Chinese were uh, in the communist, hardline communist era, were sacrificing uh, young girls. But it wasn't sort of ritualistic, honorable sacrifice the way that I think the Hawaiians or primitive people might see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was just, you know, Honestly, this is just a, a, a strange way in how, in how the Chinese interact with the world. And one of them is that they see a wider you know, social problem and they approach it completely backwards. Um, so from their point of view, you know, there's an overpopulation crisis. Um, therefore, we should uh, murder, not ritualistically and not with any tradition anything not 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 to murder children is is good at any time but the chinese didn't even try to mask it in some kind of tradition it was just sort of a a world of we have too many people but the son is important for like my last name or whatever uh so i have to kill daughter that is, I mean, that's that's about as simple as the, the, the calculus was for the Chinese. And what motivates the well, Indians is just sort of, you know. It was the same with the Hawaiians, though. Um, the mm-hmm. human, the, the aspect of human sacrifice and infanticide were not uh, one and the same. Infanticide was carried out in uh, just a very casual way. You would maybe you have more children around than you want to deal with, or it was an inconvenience. You would just smash their head on a rock or you would bury them alive or something. Uh, the human sacrifice element, uh, didn't require children. 
as far as I can tell, really wasn't especially important who was sacrificed. Uh, it was the religious system as it existed was one of like, you can imagine maybe a parallel to very strict, uh, Semitic type, like, uh, the laws of like the desert people, they have all of these strict prohibitions. Well, it was that way with the Hawaiians where they had a system of what they called kapu. And it was basically just a bunch of rules and the rules were often very arbitrary, but the rules were intended to serve the, uh, the one percent and what that one one percent in the sense out of like one out of one thousand was the hierarchy where they were I, I don't know I may be mispronouncing these things but you had um, uh, I think the uh, Aliha something of this it was you had this uh, the ruling caste essentially uh, it would be incorrect to call it a feudal system because those under them didn't like necessarily work the land or anything but they were just they were basically you have the landlord and then the the uh, the rent fags and most people are rent fags and what that meant is that there were certain things that they were forbidden from eating uh, just places they weren't allowed to go things they weren't allowed right. to do and it would be if there was ill fortune or whatever it was presumed of course that like one of these one one of the peasants had uh, violated one of these laws and so they would be tied to a tree or to a to a pole and uh, strangled to death it was the method of ritualistic sacrifice and it was in this world that the white man came and yeah. the thing about it that is interesting is that this world, this Kapu system, actually dissolved of its own accord prior to the arrival of the religious fanatics from New England. Uh, it, in fact, dissolved right before they got there because there was this great war for the unification of the islands that took place. There were some weapons had been introdu introduced by the white man. Um, and there were also the original Howleys. Howley being something I'm sure most people are familiar with. It's kind of, it's the meme. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because Howley does seem to mean, at this point at least, it seems to mean like whitey. And it would have originally meant that it what it means in their language is it means without breath or with you know so unable to speak the language uh but you could also be they introduced howley but funny enough something that we use a lot is the term hapa uh being yeah. that hawaii is the prototype of the racial chaos in many respects it, it has a lot to teach us about the horrors of race mixing and the disintegration of of tradition and the culture that comes with it. But, uh, so you could be like Hapa Howley, right. And you could be, the, the, what it, what it begs is later you have these Asiatic, uh, populations coming in due to the, uh, demands of the capitalist traders, uh, for coolie labor. It's like, do you call those Howleys? And I'm not really sure in the dynamics of contemporary Hawaii, how that works because obviously a lot of these Asiatic peoples who make up the 
at this point, by the way, the dominant population will themselves describe, I guess, Whitey as Howie. So it gets a bit complicated. But back to what I was talking about, which is that you had at this point the original Howleys, which were essentially two maroon sailors, uh, one of which was the survivor of his party that had been slaughtered, and the other was sent ashore uh, to negotiate and like was captured and uh, was da- Davis and Isaac were these two men and they essentially were the original Halley white renegades who were set up with a land and given their Polynesian wives w- w- when was this was this during Cook or after right after Cook okay because after Cook the word got out and others kept coming and some of these interactions embittered the Polynesians. This may seem like a dumb question, but how did the word get out? I mean, was Cook murdered, but some of his crew survived? Or what What was the way of which yes, this information... Yes, first of all, yes, some of Cook's crew survived, but also Cook uh, had... It wasn't that Cook only went there once. Cook right, was killed right. on his second, uh, second trip to Hawaii. Got it. Uh, but... These two men, these original Howleys, they helped with Kamehameha, his war for the unification of Hawaii. Uh, they So Western techniques started getting involved, Western thinking. And what this led to was there were some refugees even that started because, I mean, the ships kept coming. like People had kept coming and some of them had ended up somehow in America and got to the East Coast. And the impetus for the early missionary expeditions that um, took place in the 1820s was actual interaction with Hawaiian refugees who actually apparently asked for uh, this. Well, I mean, as you as you mentioned, and I, I actually would like to expand on this uh information to make a broader point you you mentioned that the islands were not unified and i think that's very analogous to a lot of these um let's say tribal societies that are somewhat unaware of the civilizations that are a little bit more globe spanning than they are until they are aware of them when they show up on their doorstep and the contrast obviously in technology is pretty stark and the pattern that seems to be recurring and frankly is recurring today in places like Africa is that when these societies suddenly get this advanced technology and weaponry, it's, it's put to good use uh, in the sense that the, the warlords or the leaders of the tribes try to take over from the other tribes. Uh, And the same thing happened in North America with all the native American Indians fighting amongst themselves. There was no unification there. So when people say the the elimination genocide of those peoples, they're not wrong, but it wasn't it wasn't one group. It was basically a bunch of different groups that you couldn't really strike a bargain with, and it was extremely chaotic. Some of them would uh, come up on you after you had struck a deal with another group, and you might misconstrue them as the the second group, and then you know take revenge. It was a mess, and I, I don't I don't want to put any moral frame on any of this all i'm trying to put forward is that this stuff was extremely 
confusing and complicated and nobody had the internet back then. So what the hell would you do? You know, if your captain was just roasted alive or killed and then burned in an oven, um, you, you might, you might go back there with a few guns or if you didn't know that you might show up and, uh, think otherwise, but nobody knew what was really going on. Interestingly, interestingly though, the white man actually never visited any real violence against these people. There was no, right, yeah, and, and, there, and there was, that, that never took place. Similarly, there were small <laughs> demonstrations of what was possible. How many people in Iraq died through American military's direct contribution? It was actually a much smaller percentage than a lot of people seem to perceive. Most of the the killings that happened after the U.S. invaded Iraq was Iraqis on Iraqis, and. I, I don't know about that in uh, the Native American American Plains Indians, uh, but certainly in Africa that's been happening. Certainly in African parts of America that, that that's happening. Be, that would be the case. That would be the case with um, well, almost any region of North America with regards to the indigenous. They did more damage to themselves than any outsider to them uh, directly, um, but particularly with the Plains Indians. Um, you know, a great deal, most of the encompassing violence that Plains Indians experienced uh, was from other Plains Indians. And typically, um, you have to remember that well into the 19th century, there were gigantic uh, population movements, particularly across the Midwest, the Great Lakes, and the Great Plains, um, and even the Southwest of large Native American tribes or Amerindian tribes, um, huge. I mean, they were still engaging in large-scale warfare with one another. They were busily moving from territory to territory, trying to claim new territory. They were on the retreat in one territory. Um, you know, while, they, while America is sort of busying itself with first industrial revolution in New England, there is gigantic battles in the American Southwest uh, or what would become the American Southwest that are totally divorced from anything going on inside the United States at the time. Uh, and, and it's completely internal to Native American tribes engaging in, you know, huge, huge battles, thousands dead sometimes. So, you know, across the series of, a, of an entire conflict. Uh, so the, the damage that they were doing to each other was just, was far outstripped anything that was done to them directly by, um, uh, by New Englanders or by American colonists. There's a book that's been that came out recently that discusses quite a lot of this called Indigenous Continent by um, Pekka Hemelainen. And uh, I think that's how you say uh, this person's name. And uh, uh, just fascinating book. And, it's, you know, it's pissed off all the right people. And it has done a great job of indicating that, uh, you know, the Amerindians were not some like weird post-apocalyptic, um, uh, you know, sort of fallen group when they started ashing it out with American colonists. These were very large, complex, dangerous um, civilizations on themselves that, you know, were engaged in a huge, huge level of um, social complexity. So the idea that, you know, the United States has had it easy fighting them and had it easy sort of taking this land and had it easy moving across the plains, it's just not true at all. It's just completely not true. And it's definitely the same case with Hawaii. 
And it's the same case with Mexico. I mean, that, you know, well, kind of and another myth. The, the story of Hawaii the, here. I mean, the story of Hawaii lines up perfectly with the story of Mexico, almost entirely with the story of Mexico. Are you down to the, you know, infanticide, sacrificing uh, civilization uh, that, that is sort of approached by, uh, you know, religious zealots uh, from, from the outside? I mean, this is completely the story of Mexico, up to the point where there's an int- weird internal civil war going on, and there's all these little microstates um, that are, when they're not busy killing their children or whatever it is they're doing, um, they're fighting each other. I mean, this is the story of the the region that would become Mexico when the Spanish first showed up. This is what they found. They found this place, sort of in a weird unified state. But it had all of these angry you know, tributary tribes sitting around it, and civilization was, you know, killing people left and right. It was just—it was a total horror show. Yeah, and another—it speaks to another myth that you see of people who romanticize the the various savages of either North America or South yeah. America or the islands. And that's the myth that they're, and you see, this is very common where you see, oh, they were great stewards of the environment. They were just so in touch yes, with yeah. nature. So much that they would burn the forest down so that they could uh, hunt better or plant their whatever crops. I mean, yeah, precisely. Well, that's that's not nearly as destructive and, as some of their other practices. That's sort of normal, like regenerative agriculture. Their worst. I don't think they thought of it that way, but in, well, in, in but some I'm, ways you're I'm, right. I mean, yeah, and at least in that sense, like burning a decrepit forest and returning it to pasture land or using it so you can find the acorns, that's fine. What's not fine was you know, the Amerindian practices once they got a hold of horses. This was a, this was a tremendous uh, blow to North American megafauna. I mean, in a way that hadn't been seen since the Ice Age, was giving these people horses. The damage they inflicted on everything from bison to beaver uh, was unreal. They had zero concept of what they were doing. And there are even writings from uh, sort of the uh, American explorers, and trappers, and uh, early uh, you know, pioneers of the time, even early ecologists, you could call them, who were horrified. They couldn't believe what these people were doing. They they just they it was they couldn't believe it. And they, you know, when the American Fur Company would send people to, into the depths of North America to figure out where all this be these beaver pelts were coming from. I mean, there are, are letters being written back to John Jacob Astor himself saying it's horrifying. You know, they're they're killing thousands of dead beaver carcasses every mile. I mean, we you know we were kind of wondering where all these furs were coming from. And now, we're, to our horror, we're seeing you know they they have completely ruined these animal populations. Um, you know these people were not stewards of the environment at all. The second that they no. had not the second that they were given the opportunity um, to make money off of their environment, exactly. And they, were given, they were given the means to do so. Yes, they they did it. And, with, and in the case of our story here, that was the early export. The early thing that they found that they were able to trade with the rest of the world was sandalwood, yeah. uh, and and what that did to their social fabric as far as basic. I mean, people were made to starve over this kind of thing, and it 
no, these people were not able to think about anything in a larger context. They never, they were never a sovereign people in the sense, I mean, the islands themselves, as I was saying, they were not unified until this great war took place. And that was in the early 19th century, not long before the American Civil War. Uh, but with this all being said, that is not to say that I look on the missionary adventure uh, with any kind of good feeling. I'm actually horrified by this kind of thing. I, uh, the fact that they were brought Christianity and the English language, uh, I, f I find horrifying. And I think that well, this is something that I'll get get into as we go on but an imperial a correct imperial policy would never have allowed this kind of thing to take place um, at least correct from my perspective but what happened was not an american imperial policy this was the in a very typical early american fashion these were the the fancies and the interests of a small clique of new englanders who wanted who wanted to, in some cases, make money, in other cases, wanted to spread their congregationalism or whatever, and in some cases, both. And they brought their women over there, which oh, I will at least say is, if you're going to do this, I mean, you could look at that one of two ways. It, on the one hand, I guess it's marginally better than the idea of just sending men over there to create a half-caste uh, but that's what happened anyways, because both things happened. And it's like, okay, like, pack your bags, honey. Like, we're going into the middle of the Pacific to bring Jesus to the savages. We're going to live the rest of our lives there. I mean, it's really mind-blowing mind to think that these people were able to make a decision like that and that no one was able to stop them. But that's what happened. And that was the beginning of the spiritual and economic conquest of Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, because it was, it's it, funny you it mentioned that. The decisions back then were not that informed. I'll just put it that way. I mean, there, there are uh, history books full of the advertising, advertorials of uh, these cities that were being sold as the new uh, promised land to people in the older parts of the United States, Chicago, principally in, in my mind, at least being a great example of that. And, you know, the, there were just these outlandish claims of just how great everything was. You can get your own, you know, million, million, whatever uh, amount of uh, such and such, and it, it won't cost you a dime and uh, you'll, you'll be a king in your own, uh, your own castle. And, these types of things were, you know, passed around, you know, word of mouth. Uh, they might, there might be a, an advertisement or a page in a, in a newspaper, but I don't think people really had the luxury of due diligence. And if the, the idea was sold, well, I think people base decisions off of very little information relative to today. And I would argue that even today, people don't make very important decisions on a lot of information, but at least we have the option to back then it was a little bit tougher to get that info. And, you know, this is why, you know, things, things went the way they were. I mean, people would just show up and be completely caught off guard. Uh, they'd either be massacred or be welcomed as gods. I mean, you never really knew back well, then. Well, no, they should have been. Yeah. I mean, like the Hawaiians today, to the extent to which there is a sort of, um, pagan revanchist movement for uh, Hawaiian identity and sovereignty. There isn't, by the way, really. It, it's not really a thing that exists. Uh, 
uh, these people are pretty complacent and resigned to their own extinction because they died a long time ago. They died two, over 200 years ago because this was their opportunity to live and they, they chose to die. They chose to die when they did not behead the white man and when they decided to allow like their women to be sold off to them. Uh, it, it was over for them. They're, they died. And the problem is, like, I don't care about them. They can die. Uh, what I care about, of course, is uh, the white power on the North American continent, our country, or at least what was at one point maybe going to be our country. And this was the time in which it was our own sort of hour of decision. We had a similar choice to make, albeit it wasn't until a few years after that where it really came to a head in the 1890s, which we will get to. But my point in saying all of this is that contrary to some of the narratives that you'll see about the evils of like the sugar planters and their conspiracy to overthrow the sovereign Hawaiian state, it's like, no, shut the fuck up. It was done. It was over. When you started naming your children things like Ezekiel, Kawakawakawani, you know, it's over for you. And those are exactly the names that they would – I mean, Hawaiian names are hilarious because you see these just – these ancient Jew names mixed with, like, their 14-character alphabet, like, you know, word salad. Uh, a couple things, if I may. Uh, on the sort of – relationship between all the different groups in Hawaii. I just wanted to put a couple of uh, facts and figures out there to provide some context. Uh, you mentioned 1890. There was a census done. This is from Kinzer. Uh, there were 40,612 native Hawaiians. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We're not there yet. Wait till we get to it because we have a lot to talk about with foreign labor and stuff like that. Well, you mentioned rebellion, okay, or, or at least I, I wanted to mention rebellion uh, in the context of the overthrow and all this stuff. I, I, to be honest, I was completely confused by all this history because I couldn't tell who was doing what. And the main point I was trying to make was that there were a lot of groups vying for power on this island chain, including Hawaiians, including Asiatics, of which I was about to say were almost as large as the Hawaiians. And then now they're even outnumbered by the Hawaiians are outnumbered by the Asiatics. And the irony was that the, the, the last sort of round which brought annexation of Hawaii into the United States, one of, one of many rebellions, there was like four, four years of rebellions off and on, you know, led by different groups. But one of the groups was backed by the Asians in support of the monarchy, I guess, against the United States. All I'm trying to say is that it, it wasn't just Whitey showing up, taking over. It was a lot of groups fighting over this place. That's all I wanted to really just try well, to establish. Yeah, but it was Whitey, unfortunately. And it was a particular, the worst kind of Whitey, which is the American. And the problem with the American is he has no sense. He's like a retarded child bumbling into this. He doesn't have any conception of what the fuck he's doing, where this is going. And what ended up happening, the reason that there were these Asiatics there is because of the labor policies that started to be enacted because the frontier, this part of the frontier was being allowed to be settled by religious fanatics and capitalists who have no, they are not checked by any conception what an actual national interest would be. And they wanted to recreate, I mean, two, one of the most famous ones, of course, is uh, Dole himself, 
Uh, and to Dole's credit, he did not want to recreate a plantation society, but there were others who did. Uh, they initially brought in the Portuguese as coolies, funny enough, right? So they found like lo- the, <laughs> the lowest, the lowest, the least white element of the European population to bring in, and that was the Portuguese. Like I guess still had enough, uh, you know, we're still human enough to where they uh, demanded. They demanded higher well, wages. They had their share of explorers and uh, oppressive conquests of uh, jungle lands in uh, yeah, South America. Yeah, see, see, see where that got them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And eventually what that led to was, yeah, the importation of uh, Chinese and Japanese. But uh, the point to just – you jumped ahead a little bit there. What I wanted to say about this was just that that's the system, their old system, their old gods – the uh, system of Kapu that I mentioned, it was actually dead before the first missionaries arrived. Right before, but before. Uh, I was reading like some of the diary entries of, you know, these these congregationalists who are like, oh, we were pleased that like to learn that this that this cruel system had has already been abolished. And it had they had abolished it because in a large part it was I don't think anything ever really deeply felt because most of the people, I mean, it was a very top heavy society ruled by this priest class that demanded sacrifices and uh, the introduction of the rest of the world really shook in a way that it dissolved itself. And that's actually historically rather unique. Normally when you have the spiritual conquest of another people, uh, you have one God displacing another it's I I'm at a loss to find any examples where a people kill their own god, have a void that is existent for really at all, and then that's eventually filled by the um, whatever the new the new god is that is that is brought in from outside. But I wanted I think that's important to understand because the hand wringing that you'll see from certain writers, especially those who were trying to do a grand narrative about American uh, colonialism and racism and imperialism and blah, blah, blah. Uh, they tend to neglect this point that the, these were already a conquered people. The later political questions that come in in the 1890s as to what will be the specific arrangement going forward are really separate from the fact that these people were conquered. It's true that you could present other counterfactuals as to what else could have happened, like who else could have conquered them. Uh, that's very true. Uh, as far as French, because there were, were French Catholic missionaries there as well. Uh, and the French would were trying to do things as they normally do, like trying to uh, make them speak French. <laughs> yeah, reduce, really reduce working hours, give out bread, you know, baguettes. Oh, they lost that out. Um, the fact is, though, that the missionaries, uh, in the context of white America and America going forward politically, uh, for some reason, these people like were allowed. There was a time in which these Hawaii, this Hawaiian population, was actually among the most literate in the world. They had like ninety percent literacy rates, thanks to these missionaries. And people are looking on this like it's a good thing. But 
the fact is that they were inculcated in a specific way of thinking in the English that they spoke every now and then in the, cause there were a lot of, keep in mind there's the background to all this interaction with the rest of the world. In addition to the STDs were, was disease generally, uh, di- you know, this is an isolated people. So disease became a very serious problem. So a lot of the subsequent dynastic rules tended to be a bit short considering that people would die relatively young to disease. And uh, among these, every now and then you'd have one that would like have a bit more like traditional Anglophilic bent. Uh, some some actual Englishmen would get in their ear and uh, one was corresponding with like Queen Victoria. Um, actually, that was the late, uh, I think, Lukalani was actually, I don't know if I have my my timelines crossed there, but the, the fact is like, it wasn't necessarily like a complete given that it would be the Americans who won out after 1820, but it was looking more and more the case because they, they were the ones that put and not, or I should, when I say they put, uh, again, it wasn't a consciously directed effort and the eventual revolution, if you want to call it that, or the, the, what happened with the annexation this was done largely by Howleys, right? These are people who themselves were born in Hawaii, sons of missionaries and now merchants themselves. Uh, they were Hawaiians in a certain sense. I mean, Hawaii was not an American state. These were, these were people, these were like white men born in the middle of the Pacific. And they happened to be the de facto rulers of the island, despite not having like political authority, just by virtue of the fact that they were the, I mean, they were the white men there, and they had their little sugar plantations, and that was bringing in the money, and these... They never stood a chance, and they never stood a chance when they allowed this to happen in the first place. I mean, they could have maybe been crushed violently uh, had they resisted, but honestly, that's probably not what would have happened, because this, again, wasn't something that was directed by American power in the early days. Uh, I, you can imagine maybe other possible scenarios, uh, but it was up in the air as to like who was going to control this. But the thing that really mattered was not the sugar. Uh, it was the 1876 treaty that did have its merchant element. Of course, it was about sort of exclusivity uh, with trade with the United States. But that's also when... Uh, Pearl Harbor was established on Oahu. That's when it really started to matter. So the military significance of the naval base in the Pacific, which was really an ideal naval base. Uh, And there was eventually this. So there was a, if you're familiar with the book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, uh, this was very influential in terms of this age of American imperialism. I, it was written, I think, in 1890. So, like, Pearl Harbor had already been established, but it wasn't really formalized completely until what was the so-called Bayonet Constitution of 1893, which was a renewal of the treaty, but it was one in which they're starting to have to deal with the problem of, like, okay, well, we can't allow... If we're gonna get, we're gonna do as Americans. Like the only kind of government that we do is involve some kind of democratic process. 
for whatever reason. Uh, but that's the way it is, I guess. And so it's like, well, how do you keep these people from voting? And that was the, the ban at constitution is what it's called. It's like, well, you put certain restrictions. They were just trying to figure out how you can give like a pretense to a legitimacy of like making it from the way they were looking at it. Like, well, they want to like formalize this relationship, but they certainly can't allow the Hawaiians any kind of say in how this is going to be done. And apparently it was off the table to just be like, yeah, no, nah, you're, you're just going to do what we say because American state wasn't 100% behind that. It's, I guess, a bit complicated, but the important part is that like sugar is not really that important. I mentioned earlier, we, we discussed the McKinley tariffs. Uh, that was 1890. It wasn't the sugar is only important in the story insofar as the people, the the white men on the island, the Howleys, uh, that was what their interest was in, and that was where they had their money from. Um, but they were the de facto rulers in a certain sense already. Where it became an interest of American imperialism is, as I mentioned, the new kind of thinking that was coming about with. Uh, the influence of sea power upon history, which was uh, Alfred Mahan. He was like a naval officer. And this, I don't know if I said this, it was very influential on um, the, the great retard Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> but basically, it was recognized like, okay, this is, this is, a, this is militarily significant. So we're just going to run with that. Uh, the annexation came in 1898. The actual overthrow was very uneventful. You basically had all these Howleys, sugar planter Howleys get together and we're like, okay, enough with this, the pretense of this bullshit. Like, the, we're going to ask this Polynesian princess to uh, get out of the way now, please. Yeah, my, my understanding was the, the last uh, Hawaiian sovereign to rule the islands, at least in... Uh some sense was uh, that princess don't remember her name but the contrast between her and i think her brother was that her brother was effectively a collaborator with the american presence and he had actually given pearl harbor to the united states in an attempt according to kinzer at least to stave off the potential for complete annexation and that caused a lot of uh, resentment amongst some of the Hawaiians that their you know, ruler is basically giving up some of the islands to these foreigners. Uh, and he, he eventually uh, went away. I guess he died. And then his sister did not want to repeat that. Uh, and when she got to power, uh, it was whispered in her ear, in her ear by one of her cabinet members who was basically a uh, Howley that uh you know you're you're going to do fine uh, whenever somebody says uh they want to do something just say yes and she didn't she didn't like that and that's kind of what led to her downfall because she actually put up some legitimate resistance at least uh you know like in her her decision making and that was when i think this guy named Thurston uh he was a New England type guy a minister in Hawaii well he was a Howley he was a he was born there. He was a son of ministers. Yeah. Okay, but he 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 was a ordained minister, I believe. Uh, he he was part of 
some kind of church and he went back to Washington. I don't think he was a, well, he was a son of, he was a lawyer. He, so he was, he was many, many things, but he also attended uh, seminary. (laughs) I said seminary. Yeah. Um, He was from one of these new England, like religious fanatical. Yeah. uh, I I mean, he's missionary. To be honest, I don't know the, the depths of his resume, but I do know that he attended seminary and he's listed as a minister in, Kinzer's book and on Wikipedia. But in any case, he was one of the guys that went back to Washington and got this uh, annexation rolling. He was able to convince people to um, Yeah, he was make the chief architect of it. Yeah, and it, and it was it was uh depending on whom you ask, like it was framed as basically just an annexation, others would call it a coup, uh some would call it an overthrow. I mean, it, it's a lot, a lot of it is a matter of perspective, uh, but I mean, I would say personally, yeah. I mean, it was basically the uh, annexation overthrow of <laughs> of the, uh, the sovereign. I mean, she it, went it away, was right? the so. it was the formalization of something that already existed. That they didn't the the so called sovereign didn't ha- wasn't sovereign. She didn't have any power. No, and she saw she that tried her to, tried to get some. But, her sort of social role yeah. was, yeah. She intimated that maybe like she was going to do a new constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was yes, because the, the 1893 Constitution was, I mean, it was very obvious what it was. It was like there will be no political representation in this process by the Hawaiians. Like this is going to be run for the benefit of Howley power, and yeah, there were some grumblings about that. And she kind of saw that, like, well, fuck, she might be the last of her line, and mm-hmm. in fact, she was. Yeah, uh, and that's what got it rolling was when she started grumbling more. Right. Had she not grumbled, uh, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Then maybe it would have gone longer. Uh, but yeah, she did. She did do some grumbling, and it led to being like, okay, let's we're gonna put an end to this farce. Yeah. Now the problem is like so in the bigger perspective is like what it, what is in the American interest here, and. To my mind, like, so 1898, when the annexation took place, this was a big year in the context of the coming American power, right? I mean, you have the Spanish-American War is about to kick off, uh, I think, 1899, uh, in the spring and summer, if I remember correctly. And what happens in the Philippines is far more substantial in terms of the beginning of America. I mean, that's when you start having Americans killing and dying uh, in faraway places for very unclear ideas. But I would say from my perspective that Hawaii did, regardless of my attitudes towards uh, the early pioneers into this place. And I, I don't have very positive views of that. uh, It is a certainly, reasonable extension of manifest destiny because the problem is that you have some opposition at this time and you have things like the anti-imperialist league which is a whole subject in of itself uh, the anti-imperialist league was you had opposition on both correct and treasonous grounds right you have like the quaker element which was just um for lack of a better term uh nigger lovers uh, and these are the people who really form the sort of spiritual backbone of what would become American Bolshevism worldwide. And these are the types that basically, have, you know, they see something wretched and poor. They, they 
their goal is essentially like to aid the colored world revolution against the white man. And that eventually also starts to form an alliance with Jewish power, the backbone of Atlanticism. Uh, so you had some who were, you know, abolitionists and such who they oppose annexation from on the grounds that like they don't want like the white man having to uh they don't want him to rule over they want they want to make sure that like all the the you know haggard masses of this world are i don't know given a rifle i like i don't know what these fucking people were thinking um they uh, had no business anywhere near power but unfortunately that's not what happened uh, but you also had sensible people. Um, for example, like as, after this went on, you had Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard writing in the 20s and the 30s about the con- potential consequences of the situation, considering it's like, well, okay, now these people are, they're not technically, I mean, if the sort of legal ambiguities were there as to like, are you an American citizen if you're born there? But they were looking into the future and saying, well, yeah, you have. Now you have all this coolie labor. So what are these people are just going to be allowed to emigrate here? What, 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 what are we doing exactly? How does this benefit white America? How does this benefit white power on the North American continent? And the whole problem is like America had everything it needed, especially when you consider North America. There was perfect – you had perfectly suitable living space. We never needed, after the conquest of the red man, like we never needed new space. We had all the space we needed, especially if you were to put the, uh, to unify North America and remove the bizarre uh, situation we have in the North. And we could have created something wonderful. And you could have had a great Pacific empire and Hawaii would have been just fine as a naval base. Like we should, could have maintained it. You don't need to involve yourself with these people. You don't need to teach them English. You don't need to bring them Jesus. You certainly don't need to colonize it with your own people. We don't need to live there. All you would have to do is make sure that they did not have access to weapons and you had a perfectly suitable naval base. Now, the debate over imperialism is kind of funny to me because we were had already entered an imperial phase with the civil war, the suppression of the other, the other civilization or the other strand of the American civilization uh, in the South, and then the, of course the westward expansion. So, to my mind, it's just it emphasizes the point that nobody was in charge of this. Like nobody knew what they were doing, and it really highlights this. There's no political leadership, right? And I think it really underlines that the role that Hawaii then played because once these like so so okay the anti-imperialist league you know what, what something is funny about this the anti-imperialist league itself it didn't really wasn't something that mattered really by the first world war but it formally endorsed American entry into the European war and not only that if you go through the list of uh, prominent members of the anti-imperialist league you'll find some people who had a uh, principled some of the like old classical liberal types who had a somewhat more principled opposition but a lot of these people i mean take like john dewey these are people who supported american war against europe because they have to spread their messianic bullshit i mean it's the problem is like America had no business. It's like giving a gun to a child. And what do you end up with? Like these people can't, they were 
incapable of ruling the continent. They ended up turning it over to Levantine parasites, and they waged a war against Europe, and a more brutal one later that, ironically, the casus belli of that was the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. So there was a whole other possible imperialism. To me, it's like you can say, oh, it's like pro or anti-imperialism, oh, non-intervention. It's bullshit. What there is is a natural sphere of influence. And what would have been sensible was for America to focus on the Southern Hemisphere and maintain some naval power in the Pacific. But instead, like, you... This, these adventures started there, but they ended up turning all of their attention to Europe. And there's the complicated subject as to like why exactly that is and what, what forces were in place. But it's not that complicated in that these people had no plan. They had no conception of what they were doing. And at the first opportunity to basically destroy the world, they did it. So if I could give my sort of a, uh listener point of view to summarize what Nick was saying. And then Nick, you can correct me. Um, that was very interesting arc of, uh, connecting the dots there. Uh, it may be hard for people to follow if they're not as familiar with uh, what we have talked about in the past many times. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best to try to sum it up and then you can say if that is accurate or not. I think what Nick is basically saying is that the American version of imperialism is a very odd one. Uh, it's it arises out of a lot of the kind of abolitionist. Uh, we know what's best for everybody type of mindset, and we're going to go out and heal the world, uh, tikkun olam, whatever you want to call it. It became much more like that later, although arguably it wasn't really like that. Although on the propaganda front, it was. But the, the way America expanded uh, for at least the, I guess the first half of its uh, expansion was much more traditional in the sense that it would go out, fight, take land, and then plant a flag. Uh, As it sort of metastasized throughout the rest of the world outside of the confines of the continent, it became a little bit trickier because there was a lot more arguably opposition to its presence there as opposed to a, a relatively sparsely populated piece of land like North America. Uh, it became a little trickier. And so the mechanisms at which this expansion went about took many forms, one of which was uh, Christian uh, evangelism, uh, come capitalism, come whatever, you know, makes a deal with the State Department to set up a military base. It's a very odd system, and it's hard to sort of summarize in one sentence. But smash cut to today, we have... Afghan girl robotics teams being uh, put forward as the reason why we need to stay in Afghanistan. And it's it just, it, it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. It's it's not a traditional form of imperialism, yet it, it arguably is a form of it. And you could argue it's perhaps a more modern version of it. Maybe it's necessary in order to carry out some of its goals. I mean, globalization, in a sense, is an American imperial project in the sense that the American dollar is used as the currency of choice throughout much of the world's commodity complex. Uh, oil is settled in dollars. Uh, much of uh, foreign countries' uh, sovereign debt is actually held in dollars uh, or lent in dollars, then they're obligated to pay back in dollars. 
how did that come about? Well, a lot of it had to do with the second world war. Um, some of it wasn't so nice how it got established, but it's, it's not like the British showing up and saying, you know, you are our colony. It, it is a much less obvious form of, uh, control and in Nick's point of view, and to some extent, my point of view, it's not handled very well, especially if you look at it from the point of view of the benefit of the common American. I don't think it really benefits the normal person. It might benefit some of the, yes. uh, the financiers, you know, in, in New York, but it, uh, it it comes at the expense of, I think, the demographic so, so uh, integrity let's look of closely the, the communities at the... In, in the mainland and it's gotten pretty out of hand as, as it's, as it's swelled in size. So just as simple to get to my point, like the essence of it, you mentioned the British. So England is just an Island. And in order to be an Imperial power, it needs to expand outwards using naval power. North American continent has everything that we needed for autarky. I mean, you might want, you can get into like possible futures as far as what the Monroe doctrine represented and where we would look and how to the Southern hemisphere and how we would deal with that and how we would deal with Asia. And they're in a, in an alternate reality where there was a political class in America that had real potential of leadership and a political vision for the future. Like you could easily see an argument where it makes it really a lot of sense to have a naval base on the Hawaiian Islands. Like, that's perfectly reasonable. It's probably a good idea. And the irony is a lot of the criticisms of, well, we have to beat out like the Asiatic peoples and stuff, but the, in only like 50, fast forward like 50 years, like even after the, the war, the very brutal war, by the way, in the Philippines, you have millions of Filipinos living in North America. You have Japanese, you have Chinese, you have all of these people. There was never an imperial policy in America. It was just the whims and the fancies of really simple-minded, insular people who they were not – like Teddy Roosevelt is a figure I particularly hate. And I hate him because he has – like there's like elements of the persona he affected – uh, you can kind of see like it's like an it's like a parody of what an American statesman might have been like a a vitalist healthy imperial instinct. But I mean, Roosevelt himself was of course a tool of finance power. He was a, he was a Morgan man, and all that stuff was an affectation. It wasn't real. He was it was a it was like he was in many ways a very very Trumpian figure of his day as far as what he was doing. I mean, we could do a whole thing on Roosevelt, but my point is like America didn't need to do any of these things. It didn't need to get entangled in the Philippines. And when you look at, uh, I mentioned the influence of sea power upon history, like Mahan himself was not in favor of what happened in the Philippines, but there were no adults in charge. And what ended up happening is this like schizophrenic, mixture of these very of like Quaker and Puritan bullshit mixed together with the domination of the entire American political scene by finance power 
and eventually the master of the money power itself, the Jew, all these things, like all, all the potential projects that would have, you would have thought started in this so-called imperial age, it all turned again to Europe, to destroying European civilization. Like you would, what you would want to see is a healthy national interest being expressed in American policy and also a healthy respect for wanting to see that the mother culture is that there's peace in Europe, that there's peace in Europe and there's a healthy relationship between the North American white power and Europe. And you could have maintained a Monroe doctrine where it's like, yeah, well, Europe is not going to interfere here because this is, we're doing a thing here and that is what it is. But no, and it's you have the worst of all possible worlds. And it's just I think it's very revealing that as soon as this stuff started getting going, America turns immediately to interfering in European affairs. I'm not saying that like Hawaii was had a lot to do with that directly, but this time period, eighteen ninety eight in particular, like the Philippines, Spanish American War, um, and what came after that. Hawaii is just sort of an interesting footnote in this and the fact that like even then people were like, well, what what do we want this for? And eventually it's ironic because America, again, as a Bolshevik power in the Cold War, part of the reason for Hawaiian statehood was explicitly because it is a racial shit show. And it's like, ah, look, yes, colored the colored world. We represent you. Is that is that right? I mean, the statehood yes. happened after, I guess, the Second World that was War. A, that was an aspect of it. Yes, it that was, was a, actually was Cold War prop, propaganda. Yes. Oh, interesting. Is it Cold War dimension? So it's sort of like today, where they want to have uh, Puerto Rico as a state. Yep. Same same kind of argument. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Um, well, I, I think well, I'd ask you this. I think it's oh, much, much more shallow. They they just want Puerto Rico for uh, <laughs> for like extra voting. But oh uh, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't think that there's a wider ideological. Mo- I mean, who who are you broadcasting to anymore? I mean, everybody's sort of on board with that message now. I don't, you know, that that's like well, everybody's uh, American now. Yeah, I, I don't really. I think that they just want Puerto Rico for uh, for you know, just sort of like Tammany Hall style politics. I don't I don't think there's any more motivation than that. But when Nikki's saying about. Uh, uh, drawing a line between the annexation of, uh, of Hawaii and nearly 50 years later, the um, introduction of America into Europe for the second time. Actually, you know, basically 20 years later, effectively, less than 20 years later, we have the American introduction into mm-hmm. uh, into Europe for the first time. Yep. And you can draw a direct line because it functioned the same way. Um no, it was the exercise of American naval power, the exercise of the American Marine Corps, um, the utilization of American financial and business interests to lay the groundwork, to uh, acquire assets, to um, begin to create political networks on the ground as you need them. Um, th- this is sort of the standard American playbook. And it works pretty well. And you know, it's hard to begrudge the United States for doing this, A, because in some ways we're beneficiaries of it. But B, uh, this is how you know, powers work. This is how um, you know, countries that 
are active and want to expand actually uh, perform those operations. You know, it's a shame that some of it was never really done. Most of it was probably never really done to directly benefit us. And certainly now it's not really paying off. Um, but you, know, you, you can see the logic of why you would want to do this. And particularly in the case of Hawaii, um, by creating Hawaii as this anchor for the American Pacific Fleet, it gave the United States everything it needed to begin uh, the transformation of the Pacific into an American zone of commerce. I mean, the Philippines is sort of inconsequential uh, compared to the annexation of Hawaii. And America's seizure of Guam and, you know, its, it's dalliances with the Samoan well, Islands. Wasn't, wasn't all Guam this, after the Japanese conflict? Yeah, but, um, yeah. yeah, but all of this is sort of inconsequential in comparison to uh, you know, the seizure of Hawaii. Right. None of those islands are that particularly. I mean, they are useful, but they're not that useful. Hawaii really is the linchpin in you know, America's uh, Pacific posture. It's, you know, if, if anything else, the island chain will remain a state just because it makes it easier to station you know, the U.S. Navy there. Yeah. Um, that, that's basically it. I mean, I would suspect that that's prob- that was probably the biggest reason why uh, you know, the American government in the late 1890s was on board with this idea of annexing Hawaii, of you know claiming it as territory. I mean, you think big picture. You know, think twenty, thirty years ahead of time. Um, you know, we want to be able to launch a an all metal hull fleet into the deep Pacific. We want to be able to compete with the Dutch and the English and the French on resource acquisition and on large scale business deals. The only way we're going to do that is if we have our own base in the Pacific. And at the time, you know, the British, the French, and the Dutch already had those bases. They already had those capabilities. The United States was lagging behind. So realistically, you know, the there's a great paradox here in that America's seizure of Hawaii in an act of, let's say, colonialism was the first step in the dismantling of everyone else's colonial empire. It was America sort of uh, taking over the colonial reigns from every other power in Europe, and particularly in the Pacific. Which is a a great point, Hans, that I could go into on a number of levels, because that was, especially in the context, make the comparison to the Philippines. Uh, With the Philippines, it was quite different. It was, I described the, the fact that Hawaii was essentially peacefully conquered i mean these people were murdered spiritually but they were peacefully conquered in the sense that they didn't need to be you didn't need stacks of corpses there was no he, trail of tears moment yeah there was no waterboarding which by the way was was found its advent in the philippine war which was something that was uh, the spanish had started doing and the americans learned after that but the fact is that america stepped in uh to support the to support the revolution against the Spanish crown. And then they also wanted to stay after that. And so they fought a war, but that continues to be again, America as a Bolshevik power. That's what they did throughout the cold war was they, it was a war on behalf 
of the rising tide of color against white power worldwide. America has been the single greatest enemy of white power since the 1890s. Well, okay, I have to sort of and, and say something add, about that, that that phrase, white power. I, I, I don't know what you mean by it. Uh, I'm not sure what anybody means by it. White rule. But let, let's, yeah, because a, a lot of uh, people who don't like maybe what some of what we have to say will use that against us and say, you know, we're about uh, controlling everybody. Uh, what I would say is that, uh, you know, white sovereignty is really my goal. Uh, I know it's your goal. I don't know if you have additional goals, but what that means to me is it, it's it's not to the exclusion of other people having a say in their own affairs. It's just to the exclusion of them being in my country, and uh, that's really all I would say about it. It's just it's just separatism. It's 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 nationalism. It's basically saying no, this, that this, I, I, abstract, I need my own country. These are abstract moral formulations. No, no, no. Well, I don't. No. I, fine, <laughs> but you're going to use a word, and I'm going to try to put some some definitions on it because that's a very loaded word, and people might interpret it a certain way and i want to be very clear about at least my stance on what that means and i don't necessarily okay, well, what, think it's it's when i'm when i'm talking about white power worldwide when i'm what i'm referring to is a state of reality a state of historical facts whether or not colonialism was a project was a good idea in some kind of vacuum that it was a good idea to send uh, European peoples to far corners of the world and set up colonies uh, and having to compete for land and resources with the various native peoples, that, it, that's a, not an important question because the fact is that that's what happened. So what that means is there were white men living, for example, in the Dark Continent, in South Africa, in Rhodesia, in North Africa, but in the Sub-Saharan Africa, you had white men trying to have civilization there. And it was American power that was used against them. It was American power that sided with Negro communists against them that is now disenfranchising them. They were a minority people. They were the colonizers and they were a minority. So what white power meant was them being able to continue living and not being subject to the rule of the colored races. And this is the same. The same is true in Vietnam and in Indochina generally. America sided against French colonialism, and then, ironically, as is often the case, just like the Philippines, that's a, actually a very, a very on-the-nose parallel. It's like we're going to side against—I mean, albeit the Spanish did not have the same presence of actual colonists living there, but uh, we're going to side against the European power, and then we're going to also kill the same people. <laughs> I think most of America's anti-colonial moves were— Incidentally, uh, anti-white. Let's say, I you know there was there's no reason that that would have been the focus, and it probably was very low in the priority if there ever was one for most of these conflicts. The chief reason why the United States wanted uh, these countries out of the colonial business was that it, you know, American ruling class had wanted those opportunities for a very long time and and didn't really wait even a year in many cases to take advantage of the vacuum. I mean, you can't necessarily say that 
you know, it, it, it was some kind of anti-white conspiracy that America uh, helped sunset the French colonial rule over Vietnam, only to then pour hundreds of thousands of white American soldiers into Vietnam to conduct combat operations against the locals. I mean, that doesn't really square. I don't, I don't see a lot of the, the African story with Rhodesia is something else entirely. I don't think anybody really still understands what was going on there. Other than maybe this was some backhanded attempt to uh, erase the last vestiges of British colonial power. I'm really not sure what that was. But in most cases, the American dismantling of other colonial powers is really just out of like self-preservation and expansion of American power. Yeah. I think it was propaganda and in some way, and in some, to, to and say that they're uh, imperialist, even though they I will are. say, in some cases, in some cases, it probably furthered, you know, uh, like white rule in certain parts of the world. I mean, it was Amer- it was white American rule in many places. I mean, what was the alternative, by the way? It, a lot of this is in the context of the Cold War. I think America, there's a fixation on America sometimes as this you know, massive anti-white force during the Cold War. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union was the, and the Chinese. Yeah, they they backed Rhodesia. They were the massive anti-white forces. They were the massive anti-white forces. And and to be fair, Nick, Nick, I think was talking about South Africa and you're talking about neighboring countries related. The Rhodesia and South Africa are definitely anomalies in this. Uh, It's still not very clear to anybody what America was thinking getting involved in either of those the way it did. But there was some wider game there that maybe in 30 years when everything's declassified, we'll finally figure out. But for the most part, America, you know, was actually furthering, incidentally, uh, furthering, you know, let's say the cause of global global white rule while also dismantling rival colonial empires. That's the United States imposed white American colonial rule over Japan in the aftermath of uh, World War Two and Korea, for what it's worth, and most of the South Pacific. So, you know, this brings this. Go ahead. This brings back to what Adam was saying, though. Like, I, I don't think it's important to rule over Japan. I don't think that's a good thing. When I was talking about white power, I was talking about what was already established as. I don't believe that there was some kind of necessary conspiracy per se. It's just that America, it the tendencies in the American power was towards a form of Bolshevism of its own because it was not operating in the interest of America. America, we had before the American continent. I mean, it's a gold mine. Like you don't need anything else. You don't need to do these things. You do. I mean, you do. I think that there. I think that there was a logic in the Cold War that made sense, and that there there was a very real existential risk of the other side, the Soviets, and potentially uh, the Chinese, uh, getting their hands on enough resources and enough strategic points around the globe that could nullify America's you know, sort of homegrown advantages. I mean, that was that's very possible. I, I, there's no, be, there's, I, there's I, no I reason why the the very very incredibly astute you know sort of Cold War strategic planners, maybe some of the smartest people who've ever lived, 
uh, you know, wouldn't there's no way they wouldn't have considered that possibility. They were, you know, I, can we can we just ignore all of this and and use what we have at home? And I don't I don't think that was possible. No, they I agree. They they definitely got more intelligent and more sophisticated in a certain sense. That is after they betrayed Western civilization, because by that point they had already sent half of Europe into Asiatic communism. Oh, okay, we and, agree with you in wait, World wait, War me, II, let, but you said it was the Cold War particularly. Let me, let, me, let me finish my point, though. The, at that point, the Atlanticist empire had already been established. So, yes, it was. they have, since that point, been following a certain logic. I mean, Hans, you and I have talked about uh, what's going on in, in Eastern Europe. Like, I actually admire the beast on this. I think that they are very shrewd and very calculating, and I think that they're doing things that are in the interest of the empire that they've established. The point in the context of what we've been discussing is that this empire never had to come about. There were other possible forms that American power could have taken. And I see where it, you're coming from, but I, I just I disagree. I don't I I think that the the, the logic of the Cold War changed that. There, there was an entirely different path that could have been taken had there not been, you know, the great red devil uh, to face off against. That, you know, I, I think it's easy for us, for people in our scene to go back now and, you know, adopt some of the tanky takes on the Cold yeah, War. Yeah, take for granted Soviets. the fact that the Soviet but, Union fell apart. It, it was a pretty formidable adversary yes, this, 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 especially this after world war ii when they were rolling tanks into eastern europe it, it was a big deal yes, yes. This is a but america created this true america uh, we had a part i don't even mean by created well, it i mean it's no, just one country united out states, of hundreds hold on united states had a massive role in creating the soviet union and then lived to hate this reality it had made which is a common thing with foreign policy to create circumstances that haunt you in 30 years and Korean the Soviet Union haunted America. I mean, it was truly, it, it was it was this specter over the United States. It occupied the minds of America's best strategic planners for 40 years, was how to deal with this thing. And he was engaged in global subversive behavior. And it was attempting to undermine the United States however it could. I mean, you know, this it was targeted. The idea that the Soviets would not have inflicted some kind of major death blow on the United States had the opportunity been given, I, I think that's silly. And so the, I don't believe that America could have done anything else than it could that it did in principle uh, when the Cold War started. Now, it was like, you know, dismantling South Africa and engage in, you know, creating trade links in the 80s with the Latins would eventually kind of become NAFTA. Was that necessary? Probably not. Uh, you know, was bringing over hundreds of thousands of Hmong and Vietnamese refugees to settle California necessary? Probably not. There's lots of bad moves and lots of head scratchers that still don't make a lot of sense. But the idea of like, okay, the United States has to get involved. There's no way we can avoid ignoring these people anymore they will dominate us there's no way we can avoid it like and you can see that's the american logic in south america everyone from pinochet to vargas in africa where the united states sort of 
played footsie with Rhodesia in South Africa for 30 years and never really focused too greatly on bringing them down, just sort of didn't provide them with, you know, trade and played you know, games in the UN with them and, you know, allowed them to continue to rule when it could have undone them at any time. And on the flip side of that, the United States supported the Portuguese in Mozambique, which was a far more, you know, oppressive colonial enterprise than Rhodesia ever was. The idea that, you know, America was like this anti-white bastion in the Cold War, I, I don't really, in, in the run-up to the Cold War, and with some of its colonial enterprises, I don't buy it. I think that this, I, I think that what we think of now with American foreign policy is a very recent heel turn. It is yeah. only, you know, it's it started yeah. in the last 30 years. And now, I mean, now it's on. And, and there are factions of the U.S. Yes. Uh, foreign policy apparatus that are, I think, uh, aptly described as the way you put it, Nick. But I think to describe everybody in Washington and the whole country as being anti-white, it just isn't true. Maybe well, you're not making that say, claim. I would but say it's, in Washington. No, I'm saying, I'm saying specifically Bolshevik. And to what I mean by this, and it's not about motivations. Obviously, you would have various people who are operators for Cold War Zog who are themselves like personally racist. Of course. And you have different motivations at different times. But what is the Cold The Cold War was a struggle for the colored world between the USSR and the U.S. because Europe had been neutralized. Why had Europe been neutralized? Europe had been neutralized because of the American imperial interventions in Europe that happened only... 17 years after what we're talking about like this is a country that has no experience in real diplomacy real statecraft and it starts intervening in the old world and destroying it between the wilson and the roosevelt administration that's what produced the cold war was the destruction of europe and american meddling in that and america was meddling in that for reasons that had nothing to do with any reasonable understanding of national interest it blundered into this and it blundered into this by people who you have a mixture of various various ideologues pale face ideologues and of course alien elements well, and my you can, you can look at the motivations of people like colonel edward mandelhaus in world war one he's a close advisor to the wilson administration and you can see what their motivations are there. I mean, you know, the motivations for America getting into World War One from his pers from the perspective of guys like that was pretty much just business related. It had a lot to do with business, Germany's chemical industry, and to a lesser extent, Germany's heavy industry. And it wasn't even, you know, like something like the Morgenthau plan later where it was just vile and no, that, that was just hatred. race racism against yes yeah. yes where it's it's like it's it's ridiculous how cartoonish it is Mandelhaus is you know really just basically thought well I have some American conglomerates here that could probably do this uh, this whole chlorine yeah, and, and, and look at the Marshall plan I mean it was it was basically aid to, to Europe but I think that I, I think that there were like clear motivations in, on the part of World War One, and it, the idea that you know that there it wasn't in the, the, the America's national interest is hard. It's hard to say whether or not it was. In some cases, it was in America's national interest, particularly World War One, 
because it was going to allow for the uh, the defenestration journey, it, or so it, they thought. It, it helped DuPont and the uh, weapons manufacturers certainly. Yes, uh, and America was already involved in World War One before it entered the combat role, and it was in, involved in World War One by supporting uh, at one at one point on both sides, uh, let's say, and then strictly supported the French and the, uh, the British Empire later yeah. on, but. Mm-hmm. With financial support, material support, engineering support, aid, you know, this this was done more than like. I mean, there is there are some indications, depending on the history of World War One, that this is done very selfishly, and this is just done to ensure that Britain absolutely ruined itself. And by all accounts, Britain did ruin. I mean, Britain destroyed itself in the world. World War II was sort of a a last hurrah for you know what remained of the British armed forces, but in World, it was just ruined in World War One. As a result of you know this endless stream of American material support that allowed them to uh, have this barrage that they could continue to fight the way that they were, and this was done I think very selfishly by the United States, and it wasn't America's interest at the time. There was an interest in seeing the British Empire die, and it was seen as an, an interest because it would open the door to. American possibilities, American business possibilities, American military possibilities, American colonial opportunities. I mean, you know, this, I think that a lot of this was just very, you know, it's like what any nation does, it's selfish. And I would argue that that, that was probably the logic behind World War One was actually very much a national interest in seeing, you know, Germany ruined, uh, the British Empire hobbled and the French wiped out. If you could succeed in doing all of those, then you know, sort of the world was for America's taking. Um, I think that the only thing that prevented that, uh, there was a couple of factors that prevented it. Number one, the American population had a mental breakdown after World War One. But number two, uh, the, the American economy imploded in, in the late 20s. And that put a massive damper on you know, the American colonial uh, framework, I think. Uh, but by no means would I would I say that like getting involved in World War One wasn't in America's national interest. Did it work out? No. Did it doom America to have like a, a you know ruined set of allies that are now you know retirement homes uh, in Europe? No, it hasn't really worked out. Um, but it definitely was an interest at the time that had a, a certain logic to it. Which is what most of most of what America does is 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 really that I think it's something that has interests at the time and there is a logic to it. It, yeah, might, it, it might not seem clear forty years later, but it, it works at the time. And I wanted to. And but by the way, Nick, I I think we agree with your frustration about the United States's yes. uh, yeah. mishandling of all these events. Uh, what I think. We might add, though, is that there was probably, at least from some people's point of view, an attempt to have an interest of the country at heart. Now, that may have been misguided. It may have been mishandled. It may have just been wrong. But uh, the Cold War uh, in particular, I wanted to go over for a second here. Um, I think one of the reasons why 
at least on the surface, the United States ended up doing a lot of this, uh, you know, color, uh, not color revolutions at the time, that that came much later, but it, it would align itself with the peoples of the world, let's say. Uh, and I think that a lot of that was an attempt at, at propaganda to counteract the propaganda from the communist world because the communists were supporting yeah, the revolutions. Let, let, let me finish, please. Yeah. The communists were supporting the revolutions of the colored peoples as a proxy war against the capitalists. Uh, I don't think they gave a damn about Africa. I don't think they gave a damn about Asians. But it was seen as a way to undermine their rivals, just as the Americans were doing the same to those same peoples against the communists. But a lot of the, the verbiage that was used was America, the leader of the free world. And then the communists are, we are allowing you to free yourself from the capitalist oppressors. I mean, it's it's just, it's propaganda. And in order to actually make some of that language seem like it actually is real, I think a lot of the American foreign policy ended up doing things like taking millions of Vietnamese refugees, taking millions of people from the Middle East or Latin America into the United States. And I think at the time, the United States was like 90% white. They took for granted that wasn't going to change. They, they were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. And I think they made a huge mistake in, in miscalculating that, but they took for granted that you could just, the country's so big, you could just keep dumping people in. It won't matter. And in doing so, we'll benefit because we'll get the hearts and minds of those same people the communists are vying for. I don't think it was a, a direct attempt to undermine the whites. Now, there may have been some people who are trying to do that for sure. And we, we know that. We know who those people are. But I don't think Joe Schmo from the Midwest who got a job in Washington was thinking, you know what? I'm going to destroy my community. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that by importing a bunch of the peoples that we've just bombed to hell into where I grew up. I mean, he, he's delusional, but I don't think he actually wanted to destroy Mayberry where he, he used to you know play, play baseball with his friends. And he ended up doing that because he's a short-sighted, buffoon, but I don't think he wanted to do that. That's all I wanted to say about that particular aspect. Yeah. Sh Short-sighted buffoon. This is how I would, I would characterize American imperial policy from the beginning. Sure. And that's why we are where we are. And that's my point. I'd like to start off here with a song that I recorded here not long ago. I think it's one of the prettiest ones I've ever recorded. Boys, if you will, a little tune called the Lost Highway. I'm a rolling stone all alone and lost For a life of sin I have paid the cost When I pass by There goes another boy down the lost highway Just a deck of cards and a jug of wine And a woman's lies makes a life like mine For the day we met, I went astray I 
started rolling down that lost highway. Down that lost highway. 